Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we're joined by Tori Choi, an environmental activist, content creator, and communicator who on the 2nd of October is setting sail from the Netherlands to the Climate Change Conference in Chile to call for fair and sustainable travel. So Tori, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) This is the first podcast interview that I have done about the sale so this is a big deal yeah well i'm stoked to be that first person i mean i I stumbled (laughs) upon what you're doing on on instagram and i was like this is the coolest thing i've ever heard of so i was like i need to hit her up and see if she's got some time to do a podcast before she goes so thanks for taking the time (laughs) yeah no worries thank you for having me i mean it's pretty crazy thinking that i'm going on the water for nearly two months Considering the fact that I've never actually set foot on a sailboat, let alone spent that amount of time at sea. So um, this is quite an odd endeavor for Mm. me, but I figured it's nearly the end of 2019. I'm going to do something that really challenges me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Okay. So this podcast, obviously, the focus has got to be on this epic sailing trip. There's a few things I want to talk about, like why, why are you doing it? and kind of what you're hoping to achieve. But before we get into those questions, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? Yeah, sure. So my name is Tori Choi. I'm originally from Hong Kong, but I'm based in Bristol in the UK. And I consider myself an environmentalist in progress. So somebody who's quite engaged about environmental affairs, but obviously recognizing that I'm still learning and uh, that I'm trying to become more engaged with this conversation and with that address my own lifestyle habits, but then also hopefully talk about environmental issues with the wider public. Originally, I kind of branded myself as a photographer and a videographer, but with time I've kind of digressed a bit and um, my interests are primarily in environmental activism now. So I guess Kind of the amalgamation of all of those things is how I would describe myself. Mm-hmm. A bit of everything. So you mentioned environmentalist and progress. So you think there's a difference between someone in environmentalist and progress and an environmentalist. What is that difference? Yeah, I think I think it's not really so black and white, but it's almost like a safety net for me in saying that I think I'm trying to engage with this conversation and one of the biggest issues I think is when people um, tend to call out other people on things which aren't environmentally conscious for instance uh, up until recently for for example I flew quite a bit and um, that's something that I, I knew I had to address and I know that there are so many environmentalists who do fly and so many who don't, but I want to make sure that the there is a conversation around my habits and a way of holding myself accountable. So by saying in progress, it's kind of like, I don't feel personally comfortable calling myself like a really avid environmentalist mm-hmm. if I know in my heart that the things that I am doing are not as good as they could be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that there are people out there who aren't environmentalists if they choose to eat meat or if they fly that's more of a sort of like accountability thing for myself um as a way of saying that i'm like working in progress towards these goals that i have Mm. yeah i can totally understand that i'm kind of that same mentality um okay so we'll start off with the the main question which is why are you doing this massive sailing trip in the first place why are you doing it So the whole premise behind Sail to the Cop is to call for fair and sustainable travel. I think 
you know, that's one of the facets as to why I'm doing this sale. It's supposed to serve as a way of, of starting these conversations about how environmentally damaging the aviation industry is and, you know, how its growth is accelerating. So for me to be engaged in that conversation is a way for me to start tackling my lifestyle habits and hopefully that will have a knock-on effect on some other people. And it is a huge personal challenge for me. I mentioned that I've never really sailed before. Uh, I've never really been on the water for that long. So I consider this, you know, a real push for me to take this activism seriously. I think that, you know, I've attended protests and engaged with Extinction Rebellion, for instance, for example, but I've never really done anything um, bigger than that. And I want to do something bigger than what I've done before. So I saw that as an opportunity to engage with that. And yeah, that's the, those are the two primary reasons why I um, I think I'm doing it. Oh, but also this overarching idea that, you know, we are in the midst of a climate crisis. And if this can raise awareness about that, then then for me, it's served a huge, a huge benefit to everybody. Yeah, totally. I'm a yeah big believer in the concept of this um, sale to the cop. Um, I think it's yeah, what you guys are doing is really awesome, and you know the, the awareness raised through doing um, campaigns like this is is only gonna uh, be benefit the planet. So well done on that, and it also sounds like it's got to be a lot of fun as well. Like it's well, <laughs> fun is one way to describe it, but at the end of it you're it's definitely an experience that I imagine you'll you won't forget. For sure. Yeah. I mean I always think that the best experiences that I've ever had in life, the ones that I look back on retrospectively have always been the most challenging. Mm -hmm. Everything that I've ever done, I've never really enjoyed it as fully in post unless there has been some element of discomfort and a challenge. Uh, involved so i know it's going to be fun but it's also going to be really hard work and uh for being on the water for eight weeks that's i think that's a challenge even for some experienced sailors so for somebody who's never sailed before that's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be, a, gonna be a fun one so how yeah. did how did you get involved yeah that's a that's a really good question so i actually starred in this uh campaign for Stella McCartney, uh, her winter campaign, which was um, released quite recently. So as part of the campaign, we filmed in Wales for, for two days. And it's essentially a campaign that celebrates our home and is a call to action for protecting the planet. And basically through that, um, one, of the, one of the people who was selected to be on board the ship contacted me and said, hey, um, this might interest you. This is a, an initiative where we're all sailing to the UN climate conference. Do you want to get involved? And I reached out to the people and I said, I'm really interested in this. And they spoke to me about, you know, how the application process had already closed, but there are still some spaces for partners. And I would just have to find a sponsor to take me on board and to support my journey. And that person is Stella McCartney and she saw the value in the sale out she saw the you know the promise in kind of you know this huge youth initiative to get ourselves all the way across the Atlantic Ocean so she yeah she decided to be my primary sponsor and wow as a result of that currently brainstorming some content ideas and um, you know there's even talks of a three-way you know, FaceTime between me, Greta, and Stella, which is just kind of a bit crazy at the moment. Yeah. Mind blown. Mind blown. Wow. So, you know, I, I kind of expect this to be so much of a a roller coaster and epic adventure as I did, as I kind of expected it to be in the first place. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I got involved. That is freaking crazy. Well done. High five. Boom. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, okay, cool. It's, it's crazy how, you know, you do these collaborations and that leads to this and then this leads to that. And after a while, you're like, how the hell did I get here? I know. Honestly, I I mean, even being part of the Stella campaign was 
a huge thing for me, um, just in the sense that I've always looked up to Stella. You know, I grew up in Hong Kong, which is a very commercial place. And as somebody who was, I think, very from a very young age, very engaged in animal rights and uh, that side of activism, you know, Stella was renowned for pushing um, ethical practices in fashion by not using fur and leather. And so for me in Hong Kong, you know, when everyone was shopping and I was surrounded by all of these leather goods and leather bags, there was always this little, you know, little pocket of good at, at a Stella McCartney store. Not that I bought um, her, her fashion at a very young age, because obviously I was, I was quite young, but, you know, it was still something that I really admired. And then for it to kind of come full circle um, with starring in this campaign, which was narrated by Jane Goodall. It just, it had Even such an impact is, on me. Is kind of pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Jane was like my OG hero, you yeah. know, um, along with Stella. So it, it feels very, very full circle right now. I started a, an environmental initiative when I was at school, um, which was actually through the Jane Goodall Institute uh, called Roots and Shoots to encourage young people to get involved in conservation. And it was about shark finning and how it was an unethical practice and environmentally damaging. So that was kind of my first foray, as it were, into environmentalism. And then, yeah, to be part of this campaign with, you know, pioneered by Jane and um, Stella is, is quite, mm-hmm. it's quite crazy. Mm-hmm. And then I to bet. lead on to the sale to the top. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well done. That's awesome. So you touched on it earlier, but um, what are the the primary reasons and objectives behind sailing to the UN Climate Conference in Chile? Yeah, so part of the uh, objective is to call for fair and sustainable travel. And what that means is for us to talk about the conversation of the aviation industry and its growth and its impact on the climate uh, in the context of the UN COP, so Conference of Parties. Now, one of the reasons for this is because aviation industries aren't included in um, certain protocols in terms of taxation. So essentially, certain industries will be accounted for in terms of their impact on the climate, but aviation isn't, which is kind of bizarre considering it has about a 5% contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And for that industry to not be accounted for considering its growth as well is very bizarre especially in light of you know what we know about this climate crisis so there's that sort of added international pressure from you know our our sale which will garner a lot of attention you know a group of youth activists do not want to fly to the climate conference and they're you know going across the atlantic ocean i think that will speak waves about the uh, no pun intended (laughs) uh, about the sort of the plight of our, of our climate and the people protesting for it. Mm-hmm. And then another part of this is we're forming a think tank on board. So essentially coming up with these ideas and maybe potential solutions for, you know, the obstacles uh, that we can remedy to call for fair and sustainable travel. So, you know, we'll be talking about the impact of aviation on board. We'll be talking about the sort of cultural implications of this, how individual active activism can kind of um, fuel this conversation and call for fair and sustainable travel. So that's another part of it. And then also just the facet of transporting, you know, 30 youth activists across the Atlantic to a conference that they would want to go to, but otherwise they would have had to fly. Um, So, you know, that kind of lessens the carbon footprint of that ginormously, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. So you're traveling across the seas for a number of weeks. Is it, how long is it? Eight weeks or so? Between seven to eight weeks. Um, I say between because with the unpredictability of the winds, we can't exactly predict when we'll arrive at certain stops. But yeah, we leave um, at, on the 2nd of October and then we should arrive in uh, Rio, no, yeah, Rio de Janeiro, uh, at the end of November, maybe like November 20-something, I think. Mm-hmm. So from Rio, we take a bus over to, to Chile. Okay, so what does that journey look like? So you you leave from Netherlands, and yeah. are there a number and of pit down. stops along the way? Yeah, yeah, there are. So we leave from the Netherlands, specifically uh, The Hague, 
And then we stop uh, in France, I think, for a day. So we're going down the coast uh, of Europe. And then we stop in uh, Casablanca in Morocco. Um, and then Tenerife. And then Cape Verde, so the, um, so the west coast of Africa. And then we make our way across the Atlantic to Recife in Brazil. And then our final stop is Rio de Janeiro, where we get off the boat and we make our way across to Chile. So we do have quite a few stops, um, I guess, to make sure that the, the sailboat's in working order and also to stock up on supplies because, um, you know, you've got to feed 30 people while they're on this boat. <laughs> so things like that. Yeah, in terms of how many people on the boat, how many people are in the boat and what kind of people are they? Are they primarily creatives and change makers like yourself or is it quite a large portion of that is the crew? There is a huge diversity of different people on board. It's it's really cool in terms of, of what they do. Um, so we do have crew. I think crew amounts to about four, four to six people. I'm not entirely sure how many, but I know that that includes the captain, the cook, uh, the skippers, and, and essentially the people who have the, the brains to power the ship across the Atlantic. So they have the real sailing knowledge. And then we have a group of youth activists now this is kind of changing each day as we get more partners involved or as people kind of realize they can't commit to the sale for that long so we have some people who are kind of you know saying oh we can't commit and then another person came on so it's fluctuating a bit but we're looking at roughly about 30 people on board i'd say um and most of the people are kind of climate activists or people who are engaged in climate policy so you know a lot of these may be uh, recently graduated students or people who work for environmental initiatives. We even have some youth activists on board. So, for instance, um, two of the young women who started the school strikes for climate in um, Belgium are joining us and they will be taking the boat with us and then um, getting off in Brazil and doing some activism in Brazil. So they won't be joining us at the COP. But we also have people who work in uh, campaigning for fair and sustainable travel, so who uh, specifically talk about the impacts of aviation, people who have a lot of experience of the COPs and the COIs, so they know a lot about the UN processes. Um, and then, yeah, different people who are involved in just environmental affairs in general, some people from Extinction Rebellion. It's mm-hmm. quite a, a diverse group mm-hmm. of people in that regard. And you mentioned that you'll be doing these think tanks kind of on the on – the- on the trip is this something that um you're opening up to people outside the ship as well because i imagine that would be pretty interesting to hear what you guys are talking about yeah that's a fantastic question so i think that our partners who are sponsoring us have got some um questions that they've come up with or problem solving activities for us to do on board so there's kind of that that outside influence already with um what you know, what they perceive to be problems that we should think about and we should tackle. But I imagine that we will try and engage um, online, perhaps with our social media following about some of the activities that we're doing. And hopefully that will be a way for people to feed into the think tank. We do, unfortunately, have limited access to outside communications, what with being on the sea. So (laughs) whether that at the points or whether that will be you know online if we manage to secure some internet i'm not really sure but Mm. definitely think it's something that um the core team are going to take into consideration Mm -hmm. okay so you've been sailing across the seas for seven eight weeks you arrive in chile what happens then what's the plan then so yeah So we're going to arrive first in Rio de Janeiro, and then from Rio, we are going to take a bus across to Valparaiso, which is on the coast of Chile. And uh, along the way, we're going to be stopping at uh, various different places, hopefully some permaculture farms. Um, So hopefully we'll be learning a lot about regenerative agriculture as well. 
So we're trying to make these uh, stops quite productive for our environmental interests. And then when we arrive in Valparaiso, there's the Conference of Youth, which is essentially the Youth UN Conference, or it's called COI. Um, and that takes place in Valparaiso, which is not that far from Santiago, the capital of Chile. So we're going to be spending two days at the COI um, with the youth uh, climate activists and you know partaking in these conference activities and then once we finish there we're going to make our way over to Santiago where the COP25 will start and that starts on the 2nd of December and ends on the 13th of December so we essentially have just under two weeks at this main conference where we'll hopefully be observing a lot of the the talks and the workshops and um be engaged in some of the, you know, conversations that are happening. And I think there are lots of activism-led um, initiatives which are happening as well. So I'd like, I'd personally like to get involved with that. And yeah, so that's hopefully how we're going to spend the majority of our time. In terms of flying as an unsustainable kind of travel method, why, for those that are unaware, why is flying such a harmful um, travel alternative at the moment? I think it's quite difficult for me to kind of talk about flying for everybody, but I can definitely talk about it from the perspective of why I think it's not sustainable for my habits, partly because I'm not an active conservationist, so I'm not doing conservation work on the ground, which is needed. My justification to fly is not necessarily uh, very valid, let's just say. Whereas I know, for instance, there have been some people who have specialist skills who have flown to the Amazon to tackle the fires, for instance. I would never try and demonize those sorts of people who are doing vital work for a very specific ecosystem. But for me, generally, I consider flying unsustainable in part because of its carbon footprint relative to other forms of transportation. It definitely has the highest carbon footprint, generally speaking, per person, per kilometer traveled. Um, I guess there are some variants depending on the type of efficiency of the vehicle that you're traveling in and how many people you have in a vehicle. Um, but generally speaking, it does have a very high carbon footprint. Now, there are some figures floating around where people say that um, that the air aviation industry only accounts for 2% of greenhouse gas emissions, but this isn't really the case because most studies don't account for the contrails that are essentially emitted by airplanes. They only really account for um, things like carbon dioxide. So they don't really talk about, um, yeah, these contrails and nitrogen dioxide as well, which is, you know, harmful for the, uh, for the environment. So, you know, it's more like 5%. And because you're looking at a, a type of transportation which emits all of these gases into the upper atmosphere, that as well has like a bigger knock-on effect than if you were to travel um, at lower altitude. So in part, that's kind of why, you know, the science behind why it's, it's not very good. And also, you know, thinking about the IPCC and like the targets that we have to reach to mitigate 1.5 degrees of warming, we literally need to overhaul every single industry. So that means that we can't just put all of our eggs in one basket and start saying, okay, we're going to tackle agriculture or we're going to specifically tackle fossil fuels. We need to tackle every single industry. And that's why I think we have to look at the, the biggest perpetrators of, um, you know, these climate breakdown effects. And unfortunately one of those is, is aviation. Hmm. And I think well, there was a, there's a statistic that kind of, you know, floats around, which really hits the nail on the head. And that's if you take one transatlantic flight, that undoes everything that you have saved as a vegetarian for 12 years. So even diet can't really mitigate, you know, your, your climate effects. And uh, it's flight. even crazier to think. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And um, essentially, you know, there is this argument uh, that's put forward that, you know, um, animal agriculture is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than all transportation combined. And as a result, people think, oh, so I can be vegan and I can fly. Actually, on an individual level, that's not the case. If you're a vegan for a year, you're already going to go over your carbon budget 
by like five times if you take one flight. It's it's absolutely crazy how much of an effect there is. That seems hard to even comprehend. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think part of the reason why people talk about animal agriculture's devastating effects as a whole is because eating is something which is necessary to survive. Like everybody eats, but not everybody flies. And flying is only becoming more commonplace. So if we were to scale things up, flying would have far more detrimental footprint. It's just because it's a small population that actually flies versus an entire, you know, global network of people who consume food. And because aviation is growing, it's only going to get worse. So, yeah, in terms of sustainability, it's not really a very sustainable form of transport. Yeah. So um, that's kind of a scary thought because, yeah, aviation is or traveling is increasing, more and more people are traveling the world. Um, more and more people are kind of getting involved with the business, which kind of allows them to kind of go from place to place. So if that is yeah. the case, then that's, that's probably not a very good sign for uh, the environment, considering those numbers that you threw out, which are freaking crazy. But like how... It's, it's a really, yeah, it's a really tough one. Because it's a really tough one for me because my family's in Hong Kong and mm. I actually have a bit of a predicament in that I haven't been home for so long, in part because I haven't wanted to fly and I've also been really busy. But, you know, I will lose my citizenship if I don't step foot in Hong Kong. And uh, that's going to be quite difficult, what with Brexit going on. So for me, the only real feasible way of getting back in a short amount of time is by flying. I do have ways of... Um, not necessarily mitigating that, but I can fly by subload, which is essentially where there's a flight that's about to take off, but it has two seats uh, available, hypothetically, and you hop on one of those seats. So it's a plane that would fly anyway. But I would, I wouldn't want to encourage that as a, as a way of justifying one's flight, you know, flight uh, habits. It's, it's a really tricky one. I, on the one hand, I really do want to push for. Um, a degrowth of the aviation industry. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of conversations that revolve around this idea of like privilege and how, okay, a set amount of people have flown and have been flying and have experienced the joys of traveling and the privileges of um, this convenient form of transportation. And then there are all these people now who are starting to become engaged with this this industry and want to travel and want to live this life that so many other people have lived, it would be very wrong to kind of go, okay, well, us uh, wealthier Westerners have enjoyed the privilege of travel. People in developing countries, you can't enjoy that because now we've messed it up so much that we need to, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really complicated um, topic, much with, with everything in, in the climate change narrative. Yeah. There's, so, there's no real know. simple, um, you know, topics to talk about with simple solutions a lot of the time. There are no simple solutions, but I think the first step is is to talk about it. And that's what I think this initiative is trying to do, to get people to talk about it. And hopefully, you know, there are some instances where people can make really, really worthwhile changes. For instance, you know, I know people who fly from London to Paris. They don't need to do that. Um, they might do, but generally speaking, you can take the train. Um, and so that's one of the obstacles that we need to overcome, sort of encouraging people to take more sustainable forms of transportation, but also actually putting pressure on both the aviation and the um, train industries, for instance, to start perhaps working together. I think there is so much of this uh, idea that we need to, you know, work independently. I actually think most industries need to work collaboratively to solve this this crisis. So for instance, aviation get, receives a lot of subsidies um, so that, you know, it's cheaper to fly than it is to take the train. We need to start talking about potentially subsidizing the train industries as well so that train tickets can become more affordable so people will be more inclined to take the train as opposed to fly. Um, I know that traveling by train is extortionate considering you know the distance that you travel relative to a flight but this is the thing i think again you know we need to have these conversations to realize that 
these are the changes that we're going to have to make. Um, I think there was a case study that I read about or heard about when I was at my training weekend, which was that essentially um, a flight to Spain from London is 50% of the cost is subsidized by taxpayer money. So essentially what we pay in taxes subsidizes aviation and subsidizes fossil fuels so that it's so cheap for someone to fly. And I've seen costs of flights, you know, one way from like London to hypothetically, let's say Spain, um, be as low as like 15 US dollars, which is crazy. And if I wanted to take a train, it'd be like 200 plus US dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of see similar kind of things when I look online. I'm flying to New Zealand at the end of the year for my sister's birthday. And I was hopping on there and checking out yeah. different flight prices and whatnot. And it's when you're comparing flights to other modes of transport, um, a lot of the time flights are just significantly cheaper and more time efficient which is the scary yeah. part if flying is actually, um, you know, being a negative, having a negative impact on the mm-hmm. planet, if that's true, which it is, but yet it also saves yeah. money and time, which are probably the two most thing, yeah. valued things in, across the board with humans. That is dangerous when they're on it opposite sides of the spectrum. I think realistically, I know that a lot of people have kind of um, – criticize the idea of a carbon tax. There there are two reasons why I think that is, in part because there are either the industries who don't want their their businesses to be taxed, but also people who don't support a capitalist system of, of tackling the climate crisis would say that if you tax industries, that's only perpetuating the idea that the capitalist system is the solution to Um, climate change, which a lot of people would argue it's not. But I kind of think that a carbon tax is like the first step to mitigating these effects, because realistically, businesses are not going to care or not going to um, be accountable for their damage to the planet unless money is involved, because this is the system that we're in. I know that, you know, tackling the system at large and changing that would be idealistic, but it is a kind of a mammoth task that is beyond my cognitive like <laughs> abilities. Like I can't imagine another reality at the moment. And that's in part because I don't really have the answers. And I also think that we're so ingrained in the system that changing everything is, is literally like rewriting history. It's, it's just, I can't imagine it. So I think a carbon tax would be perhaps one of the best deterrents for, uh, you know, frequent flying because yeah. um, it will become more so. expensive and, yeah. yeah, and hopefully it will encourage people to look into conference calling or, you know, uh, look into traveling by train or overland. Mm-hmm. So for me, those are kind of some of the ideas that I have around, the, you know, degrowth of the Yeah, the I, I think those are – I think when um, people talk about – um, not flying, it's kind of can come across as quite absolute and people might be like taken back from that. But what you're talking about yeah. with instead of kind of flying across to a different country for a conference, maybe just doing a conference call via Skype like what we're doing and having yeah. conversations around these slight changes that we could do that just doesn't actually compromise our experience, but it just means that we don't have mm-hmm. to take that flight. And one thing that I was thinking of is with traveling. Let's say people that um, they go on their gap year and they kind of travel to all these different countries and they spend two, three days in a place and they fly to another place. Yeah. Uh, like if you were to travel, say, um, yeah. spending time, as much time as you can in one place and really enjoying that place um, mm. instead of a day here, a day here, a day here, a day here, kind of just going through and ticking the boxes. Um, I don't know. I think conversations around um, ways, because that would be degrowth in a way, um, I think they are a step in the right direction as well, in my opinion. I think there has to be this conversation about slow travel being favorable 
Because yeah. uh, it's, it's fun. Slow travel move. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, like and what you're doing, that will be probably, you'll look back on that and be like, that was one of the coolest things I've ever done. And you could have taken that flight to South America in a half a day or however long the flight is. Instead, it's taking you eight weeks. That's slow travel yeah. to the max. But you're going yeah, to get a shit. Sure. You're going to get a shitload of value from that, and so is everyone else, as a byproduct. Yeah. Um. So kind of redefining what we consider to be valuable as well, I think, is needs to be part of the conversation. I mean, of course, from my interests and and for you know the fun aspect, I would much rather take a sailboat across to the Atlantic. But I think there are a few factors that I have to like highlight here, and and that. If we're talking about sustainable travel, traveling across the Atlantic, unfortunately, probably isn't sustainable by mm-hmm. boat, in part because it's, uh, you know, it doesn't really hold that many people. It's extortionate. It's really expensive. And it's also a method of travel, like you mentioned before, time uh, is a really important factor when it comes to travel. Not everybody has the time that they can take away from work, for instance, to travel for such a long period of time. Now, I think I, you know, I want to be really honest about the privilege that I have to, to do this. And I think, you know, naturally a lot of people are really amazed by this journey and I've received so many encouraging words and, and people complimenting me and going, Oh, that's amazing. Like you're awesome for doing this. And I'm like, but I'm also just really lucky. And, you know, there are so many people who I'm sure they would want to do the same if they had the money, if they had that uh, connection, if they had the time, you know, if they were able-bodied or, you know, in a position where they could speak about these things. It's a huge privilege. And and I think that uh, that's got to come into the conversation as well. So, you know, I never want to be hard-nosed about saying to people, don't fly or like, don't do this or don't do that. Because I think all of these situations are so nuanced and it would be quite ignorant of me to like put a blanket statement over everything and say oh i'm not flying therefore you you shouldn't it's Mm -hmm. like well i am a freelancer i have the time to not fly so i can slow travel i also you know fall into a demographic of people worldwide where i am wealthy compared to like a lot of people in this world um and i'm also a native english speaker who lives in a western country where you know, I'm glorified for my environmental actions. Whereas if I was in South America and protesting against, you know, people who are being environmentally destructive, I'd probably be killed. And that's, you know, that's the reality of the world that we live in. So while I think, yeah, it's an amazing initiative and I want to talk about the the positives of it, I also want to kind of like use it to highlight these negative aspects of uh, this privilege that I have and, and that there is no one solution for everybody. My solution perhaps is to fly a lot less. And for me, I'm not going to fly in 2020. And that's kind of the conversation I want to start. Um, and, you know, I think everybody's different. People have to fly home to see their family. And I would never want to take that away from anybody. And people fly for work because they have to earn a living and provide for their families and put food on the table. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think that's why I want to talk about less about individual action and more about what the industries can do to mitigate their effects. Yeah. Essentially. Okay. Um, in your opinion, what are the big roadblocks for sustainable travel? Probably the fact that the aviation industry isn't accounted for in terms of what we call nationally determined contributions. So each country has to tackle their carbon footprint to uh, essentially make um, room for (laughs) more sort of sustainable practices and to avoid going over 1.5 degrees warming. But in these um, determined contributions, aviation isn't talked about, which is crazy. So we need to get that into the conversation that each nation has to think about their carbon footprint in terms of the aircraft that come in and leave. So that's one thing. And then perhaps, you know, talking about stopping these subsidies for this form of transportation, like we have to think about the amount of money that goes towards flying as opposed to buses or as opposed to trains or as opposed to, you know, dare I say, 
sailboats or something like that. We have to start talking about these conversations about like where all this money is coming from and, and why it's going into these industries. So it has to be really transparent. I think that's one thing. And then there's also the cultural shift. I know that in Sweden, they have a term called flight scam. I can't really pronounce it, but it's essentially flight shame. Um, so people feel shame for flying. And so now there's this huge, um, yeah, there's this huge cultural movement where people are trying to take the train instead. So that's, that's another obstacle, you know, talking to people about, um, their perceptions of flying. And it's a very small amount of people that actually think about it on a daily basis relative to the rest of the world. Flight shame. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, flight shame. It's very popular in Sweden at the moment to the point where I think it's something like 30% of people uh, don't want to fly because they experience flight shame. And um, yeah. But and yeah, does that again, come from within or Europe, is that kind of like pressure from the outside? Probably Within, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's privilege as well because, you know, Europe has really good train networks. So you know, we're like, we're a wealthy continent that can afford to have decent train links. So of course people are going to think, Oh, well, you know, it's terrible to fly. So I'm going to take the train. And again, that's, that's just something that kind of comes with being a a wealthy continent. People have, have that option available, but not everybody does. Yeah. We talked before about um, how not you know everyone's circumstances are different, and you know sometimes you know one person may need to take a flight for whatever reason. Um, but how can yeah. we perhaps encourage, generally speaking, people to travel more sustainably? Yeah, I think that's a big question, and I think again, uh, to be that person. I guess it depends on context, but I would generally say the first step is to educate people, Um, not sort of like force these facts down people's throats, but have these um, these conversations and this knowledge available to people at their disposal if they want to. Because I found that when I started talking about aviation and I started sharing the facts with people on my Instagram following. And I would say the majority of people who follow me are engaged with this conversation. So, you know, they have the knowledge that climate change is a very real and um, dangerous thing, but they were surprised and they messaged me and they went, Oh, I had no idea the aviation industry was that impactful. I had no idea that it was actually 5% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. Those are the things that actually inform people's decisions. And as a result of me saying that I wasn't going to fly in 2020 and then saying, these are the reasons why there are so many people who message me and they're like, I'm going to definitely cut down on flying. Or some people have been said, I've pledged not to fly in 2022 because of the facts that you've shared. And I mean, again, you know, I'm going to talk about this idea of privilege, but uh, there are people who can make those sacrifices and make those changes and you know, I think part of it is because there's the knowledge and the accessibility of the education of, of the impacts. And I think that's that's how you can make a really big impact is by talking about these facts. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's educating, raising awareness, but also following that up with conversation and dialogue if you can. Like plant that seed with, yeah. you know, facts, stats or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it and then water that with some conversation and see where that goes because people are for the most part good people and we want to do the right thing but Mm. like i wasn't aware of this how bad flying was to the environment till recently like it took me by complete surprise um yeah and now that i know about it i'm like i want to be conscious about it and and kind of make moves to um yeah. You know, reduce that part of my life, which is, isn't a lot. I don't travel much anyway, fire plane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just that fact of being aware of it yeah. is super important mm-hmm. because naturally people want to try and do the right thing where they can. For sure. But it's really interesting because you say you don't travel much anyway, and it's, it's really admirable that you want to tackle these things. But you know, what's really interesting is that the people that we realistically want to direct this dialogue towards are the people who, fly every week 
and people who fly for business travel when it's not really needed. So actually 35% of um, travel by plane is, is business travelers. And a lot of them go to, you know, these conferences that they could otherwise conference call. I know not all of them do, and a lot of them do need to travel for, for work. But, you know, these are this, the kind of people that we want to be tackling. And I think there is this fear of mine that sometimes I'm talking about these issues and it's a bit of an echo chamber. Like I talk with people who kind of already know these things and already change so much of their life. But realistically, the people that I want to be talking to are the people who don't think about it at all. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, even if I talk to people who are engaged already, it has this knock on effect. Now, there's another thing that I kind of want to raise. And, and that's the idea of carbon offsetting has become a very frequent narrative that I've seen. And it's problematic, but it's also important to have. And I think a lot of people think that if they carbon offset their flights, that they can still justify the amount that they fly. And I kind of want to just put out this message that I think by all means, carbon offset, but carbon offset responsibly and really research into the initiative that you are using to offset your flights but also don't use carbon offsetting as a way to justify traveling even more. Cause I think there, there is this idea that, Oh, okay. So I, I've carbon offsetted. So therefore I can book that flight to the Bahamas for a holiday. You know, like I think we need to really rein it in and think about it more carefully. Mm-hmm. And also I learned that only 5% of carbon offsets actually worth work. And that 95% of carbon offsets that are out there on the market don't, or even contribute to um, environmental degradation because, for instance, a lot of tree planting initiatives have become really popular and people go, oh, um, you know, for your flight across the Atlantic, we're going to plant X number of trees. And what ends up happening is that sometimes people plant trees that are maladapted for the environment and actually just damage the environment they've been planted in. And so these trees just die and like the amount of you know, uh, carbon that it takes to get this tree to this specific location where it's going to be planted and then inevitably die is kind of, you know, it's a conversation that people need to have. So yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I wanted to raise about carbon offsetting is that it's not the solution. It's a facet we need to consider, but it's not the solution. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I wish it were, but it's not sadly. And who's planting these trees that are, dying straight away there are various initiatives that um try to essentially plant trees uh in certain forested areas and a lot of people seem to be doing work in africa as well which i just find like it's i don't know that's a whole other conversation but you know, there are these companies, they plant a tree and we will carbon offset and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you just type carbon offsetting responsible companies, I'm sure there will be At some least. really telling information about who's who's the real deal and who's who's not. And this is important, figuring out mm-hmm. who's the real deal and who isn't. We're, we're living yeah. in a world where we've got so much information. Uh, just... yeah you know, constantly we're bombarded with this information and we don't, it's hard to distinguish who's legit and who is it. It is difficult. Yeah. It's really hard. In terms of literally everything, like if you want to get a haircut, who's good, who's bad. If you want to, you know, pick an organization that plants legitimate trees, you know, in the right places, who's good, who's doing it. Greenwashing is a huge problem that we have, and and I think, and it's not the what fault of it? the consumer in all respects. Greenwashing, ah, it's like, that term. So, yeah. So it's like when a company goes, "I'm eco-friendly," and it's like, "Well, no, you're not." <laughs> and it's 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 what a lot of companies do. They try and make themselves seem more uh, responsible and more uh, eco-friendly by putting out these messages and saying they do these things, and it's like, well. Mm. I'm not going to name certain companies until I've like really, really done my research, but I know that it's a very prominent. Well, the thing, thing with these eco companies is once you kind of brand yourself as being eco, it gives you a point of difference and that could lead to more sales. 
So again, it comes back down sure. to um, the bottom line and earning the dollar. Um, but in my yeah. opinion, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It just means that if you're mm. going to brand your business as being environmentally friendly, just kind of yeah. make sure that it comes from a genuine place. I, yeah, I, I sure. think there's this idea that um, something that's good for the planet and something that can earn you money are like they, mm. they're kind of two separate things, but they can align, I think. And once they no. once we align those two worlds, I think that's when we'll start to see real progress, I think. Well, that's why I really love what Stella McCartney does because she champions the idea of a circular economy. So she's going to essentially take these materials that would otherwise be seen as waste, as rubbish, as like, you know, th these detrimental materials that would make their way into our oceans or into landfills, recycles them, repurposes them, and then makes her clothes out of them. Like, you know, I've, I've actually got a pair of shoes down there that she gave me, which are made from recycled plastic. And, you know, that for me is, it's the, it's exactly the idea that you just mentioned where you can make a profit, but you can also do something which is environmentally beneficial for the planet. Mm -hmm. And I, I would love for more businesses to, champion the idea of this circular economy where you take this waste and you make it into something good and then it's recycled and we're in this sort of closed system where all of these materials are just being constantly reused and i actually realized that the majority of materials building materials for instance that we use um that are, are metal based steel for instance they can actually be recycled indefinitely without losing their properties and their qualities Unlike like plastic that's, yeah, that's that's stuff that we need to really think about. You know, we need to start reusing these materials instead of just kind of going, oh, well, we've destroyed this, so let's just chuck it in the ocean or chuck it in a landfill. Yeah, we need to kind of think a bit deeper about once we're finished with the product or finished with whatever, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the value is gone. You know, if it's completed yeah. its role for a particular thing it's no longer needed for that particular role it doesn't mean that it can't be used somewhere else or it can't be repurposed into something else um so just being just thinking about things a little bit more deeply and, yeah. and thinking outside the box like um yeah the circular economy is is definitely the way to go i think and yeah. from a business perspective um i think there's a lot of opportunities for ecopreneurs or you know impact entrepreneurs or whatever you want to call them to whatever industry that they're interested in kind of re-envisioning that industry in a way that's circular and seeing if you can do it better or differently and that could be your point of difference and that could be your business opportunity perhaps um it's a really exciting thing for people i think it is i think really? it's really exciting and and I want more entrepreneurs to um, who are environmentally kind of conscious and, and that kind of stuff who want to do the right thing to get excited about it yeah. because there's a lot of opportunities there um, yeah, for business but also business in a way that's good for the planet. Yeah, definitely. And that's why, you know, in many respects, I know that – Stella is uh, a fashion designer and that is her, her niche, but she's wanting to engage with this conversation about travel as well, because I think everything is really holistic. Like for you to be a business uh, owner or, you know, to run a business that champions itself on, you know, being eco-friendly, we need to engage in conversations that are slightly outside of, of what we typically engage in. And I think that's that's kind of what she's doing. And I think she also really believes in the youth climate movement. And that it's so refreshing to know that somebody with so much influence and so much, you know, cultural power can engage in these conversations and champion somebody like me, for instance, who, you know, I, I never imagined in a million years that there would be this kind of uh, so sponsorship. Cool. It's it's really cool and I'm really excited and I admire so much of what she does. And I'm also a massive, massive fan of her whole family. So that's kind of like a bit of a 
girl moment for me. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of really stoked about what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm stoked for you. It's, yeah, it's going to be so exciting. It's um, awesome to kind of hear yeah. these little stories. Like I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm very new to the space. I'm like, like a year in pretty much like I'm, I'm currently transitioning from, so I'm an architect, so I'm transitioning from oh, ar- architecture to a conservationist. So I'm still trying to figure out what kind of conservationist I want to be, but, um, it's what excites me about this space is just, um, you know, you're only a few connections relationships away from something quite exciting um yeah and you I mean, really can were- make a significant impact if you commit and you put in the work yeah. one of the things i wanted to say is that you know architecture is is a really cool sort of industry as well because they have the potential to redesign and revolutionize the way that we think about things. And if you're coming in with that brain and that sort of experience, you're going to have that knowledge already of what, you know, what exists and what we can do to change things. And if you're going into conservation, like I just think everything is so interdisciplinary. Like I, I really get excited by people who come from like one background, but want to transition into something. But the thing is, the reality is probably as you're transitioning, you might find that these skills that you've had your whole life may come into handy for future projects or, or things that you're interested in. And mm. I mean, just the rise of eco architecture as well is really exciting. And, you know, um, there was actually way back when there was a, a guy that, called Andrew Grant. I don't know. He designed uh, Gardens by the Bay in Singapore, like those big sort of like palm tree structures. Okay, yeah. It was really, yeah. So he transformed um, that area into something which was really eco-friendly and wildlife started coming back. And that for me was just so cool. (laughs) I just, I found it amazing. I love it when different disciplines kind of interlink and yeah, Mm. I'm excited to see what the future holds. Mm. I'm obviously nervous. Like I get really quite engrossed in these conversations, but I am hopeful. So, yeah, and yeah, we need to be hopeful. Um, mm-hmm. As hard as it can be uh, for some people, um, yeah, we, we definitely need to remain optimistic. But we do need to balance that with realism as well. And that's where yeah. the anxiety comes from, right? It just doesn't come from a place of nothing. It's there because yeah. of the reality. So optimism yeah. balance with shit. We need to do something yeah. now. <laughs> well, I, I read the other day that um, climate denialism is just as dangerous as climate defeatism, which is essentially where you're just like, well, everything's gone to shit, so I'm not going to care. And I, w- I would be inclined to agree um, to some degree. But I, I do think you're right. I think there is a balance between being realistic and being optimistic. And the optimistic part of me says that I'm hopeful, but the realist in me says, okay, we are sadly, I think, past the point of no return. We need to start thinking about adapting to the changes that are going to come our way. Because prevention, I think we do need to prevent a lot of things, but at the rate that we're accelerating, it's it's so difficult. And I would want to push for adaptation at this point, you know, really starting to think about what governments can do um, to protect their citizens from so many knock-on effects of, of climate change, like, you know, drought and famine and migration and stuff like that. We need to think about how we can best um you know, solve these, these problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're just over an hour in. So I've got one last question, which is mm-hmm. to finish the podcast, what message or question do you want to leave the conservation tribe? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think I would say, get involved and be engaged. If you, if you can take one thing from this podcast, obviously, you know, I've talked about some facts and figures and hopefully that's enlightened you in some way. I just want to encourage everybody to get involved with the conversation. If you're not sure about something, ask questions. If you, if you're, you know, wanting to get more involved in 
climate activism, remember that this space is for everybody. You don't have to be a climate scientist. You don't have to work in conservation. You don't have to, um, you know, have always been interested in nature to be a climate activist. And I think part of the fear comes from, from thinking that, you know, it's a whole other realm that you can't get involved with. But I want to encourage everybody that if you're interested in becoming more um, environmentally inclined, just start talking about it and you'll find that all of these little knock on effects start to come together. And, you know, that's, that's what happened for me. And, and I think it's, it's kind of working. (laughs) So, you know, I think that's, that's the message I want to, yeah, want to leave, just start talking about these conversations and, and have questions and ask them and don't be afraid to, to get involved basically. Yeah, I think that's a really good message, this idea of just being engaged in the conversation, asking questions. If you're unsure about something, ask someone. Like a lot of these things are so macro and they can be quite Mm. intimidating. Um, And because of that reason, a lot of people, there's a lot of resistance for people to contribute or engage. But, it, yeah, just ask a question. You know, even if it's just reaching yeah. out to someone on Instagram, just shoot them a DM. If you're unsure about something mm-hmm. or if you saw a post, just drop a comment. Um, yeah. Because that just get involved and that could kind of slowly gain momentum and it just gets the ball rolling. Definitely. And kind of alongside that, you know, don't don't be too hard on yourself as well. I think a lot of people who, you know, start to learn all of these things start – essentially criticizing themselves inwardly and start feeling really hopeless about uh, things and start thinking, oh, I should have done this earlier. I should have done this sooner or I wish I'd known this. And I just think, yeah, don't be too hard on yourself because we live in a system which is unfortunately quite unfair. And, you know, it's so hard to be perfect in an imperfect system. That's what I always say. So, yeah, I just want people to, to, to get involved and be engaged, but also, you know, don't take the weight of the world on your shoulders because that's definitely what I did when I first became engaged in the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. And I'd even add to that, don't be so hard on yourself, but also don't be so critical on other people as well. Some people deserve the criticism, yes, yeah. but some people, mm-hmm. you just, it isn't productive to be super critical, especially if you, no, don't, know the full, if, especially if you don't know the full story. So if your objective yeah. is to kind of maximize your positive impact, then being yeah. critical on other people isn't going to achieve that for the most part. Nope. So don't yeah, be hard on an yourself and don't be a dick to other people. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Shaming people is like just so unproductive and it just makes everybody feel shit and it's just so pointless. It, so, it, it is pointless I, and it's yeah. unproductive. Like we're in this space yeah. because we're trying to change things and yeah. that isn't helping. No, Almost, I agree. A lot of the time. I completely agree. Some, some people deserve it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Gener- generally speaking, um, it, it has the uh, – yes, it doesn't help with the movement. It has the opposite effect. If anything, it makes people disengaged and angry and not want to – Mm. not want to do anything and Mm. that's why i think again like this whole idea of being an environmentalist in progress but also you know i never push one dare i say agenda too strongly like i'm never going to push somebody to go vegan i'm never going to push somebody to give up flying i'm never going to push somebody to like switch to renewable energies like i of course i champion a lot of these things but i would never want to make somebody feel ashamed of of being part of a system that in many respects people just don't really have control over. Like I find it really inspiring when people do go, I've fought against the odds to make these lifestyle changes and I've, you know, changed so much of my life. And I'm like, that's amazing. And I really admire people for doing that. But at the same time, I don't ever want to make people feel crap for not championing these individual changes when sadly a lot of it is beyond us. Like, Mm -hmm. It's it's a sad reality. I'd love to think that me not flying and me not you know eating meat is is changing the world, but realistically, it's a little bit beyond my individual action. And I think it's really important to remember that at the end of the day, like we've got to be humble about 
our existence as well as as much as I'd love to think that I'm you know changing things I'm part of a, a bigger system and bigger network of people that needs to work collaboratively so mm-hmm. you know I think it's important to remember that definitely and even on those people who may not be vegan today or may not be um, flight free today they could be tomorrow yeah or the next day yeah sure and the last thing they need is somebody telling them that they're not mm. doing enough yeah because let's say they're on the cusp of if yeah. their plan was to go vegan tomorrow and someone criticized yeah. them today that could put them off for a week or a year or indefinitely who knows yeah for sure and i'm really glad that the the conversations are changing and i think a large part of that for me at least is is due to extinction rebellion because they publicly state they don't want to shame anybody of course they shame the industries uh, because you know you're right some people really do deserve yeah, criticism there are the people that yeah yeah some like, do, you know if you don't. are mm. exactly um but i just i yeah individual shaming for me is just so counterproductive and it really uh, it upsets me but <laughs> i think people are learning that now which is mm. nice um I, I definitely am you know i think i used to think that my individual choice made a huge difference and as a result i was like oh i'm doing this and therefore you know we should all do this and and i've been through that part of my life before and i think that's just naivety and just learning i think i was just you know not really aware of, of the grand scale of this issue. And I, I used to just think that, okay, well, you know, I've not eaten a steak, so I'm, you know, changing the world. So I've, I've changed that mentality a lot <laughs> since, since really digging deep on this yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, how can people connect with you? Yeah. So I am on Instagram, um, on Twitter. I'm trying to get my YouTube started. That hasn't happened yet. I've been putting it off for so long, but I'd say the best way is probably on Instagram. Um, so my username is Tori Choi underscore, and it's probably quite hard to guess how to spell that, but, um, T-O-R-I-T-S-U-I underscore. Um, that's how you can get hold of me. And if you have any questions at all, send them my way and I'll be happy to answer. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again. And I will see you in the next episode.